Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with the biggest names in filmmaking. This week, we're sharing a special evening with legendary director Oliver Stone, whose new film, Snowden, is now in theaters. Stone joined writer Matt zoller Seitz to talk about the new film as well as his career as a whole, including acclaimed films like Platoon and Natural Born Killers. Seitz recently released a book entitled The Oliver Stone Experience, which comprises five years of interviews between the author and director, deconstructing the arc of Stone's controversial life and career. Let's go now to their conversation. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. It's been a long day, uh, Matt. Just come from the O'Reilly show. What was that like? It was uh, interesting, uh, actually, interesting. But you know, he's a strong guy. You have to, you have to stand up. And did you? What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, Snowden, uh, can you talk a little bit about the origins of this movie? Uh, what made you, what made you want to tell the story? A lot of uh, libertarians supported Snowden. Remember that. And a lot of actual, actually about 200 uh, House uh, Representatives, Republicans, voted for the Freedom Act, which was a mild modification of the uh, surveillance. But uh, they also have some 25 senators. So, you know, this is an issue that cuts across political lines. Uh, Snowden, uh, Edward Snowden was at a live uh, screening, a Fathom event screening last night. They beamed in via satellite from uh, Russia. And uh, he talked about this movie and about the issues related to this movie. And at one point I asked him, given all of the national security abuses that are outlined in this film that you yourself have talked about so extensively, what would you say to somebody who hears all that and says, yeah, but you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And if you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to be worried about. And I wish you could see this. It was extraordinary. You, you know this because you've been in his presence before, and I never had. But he, he sounded like, Jimmy Stu- like a Jimmy Stewart character. And he said he went on this incredible, eloquent monologue, and it concluded with um, saying that uh, you're not worried about your right to privacy because you have nothing to hide. It's like saying you're not concerned about your right to free speech because you have nothing to say. And that just took my breath away. Is he always like that? No, he thinks about these things and he speaks, uh, he, he speaks very judiciously. He doesn't, sp- anything he said, one word, two words, you know that it would be haunting him. So he's got to be a little careful. No, he, he said that before. What was your impression of him personally? You know, keep, people keep asking me that, but I don't really know him that way psychologically because I've always talked uh, issues with him and his... He's described for us, my co-writer and I, his life in fractured. We, I made nine visits there, so these these are tricky things for him to discuss because some of the some of it he's under indictment. There are people he's protecting, names. So uh, we got as much as we could, and often we found him to be very dram- 
how do you say, imaginative. In other words, he would say, well, it didn't, I can't tell you how that happened, but consider this possibility. So in other words, he was thinking like a dramatist would and, and laying out things that were within the realm of reason in that community. But as you can see, it's a pretty uptight world where you can't even talk to your girlfriend or your wife. I asked him if the uh, business with smuggling that chip out inside a Rubik's Cube was true, and he gave me a non-denial denial. And it was very artful, which I suppose you have to be if you're in a situation like that. Uh, did, yes. did, he, uh, did he talk about, or has he talked about recently, um, his feelings about the United States, whether or not he would like to uh, return not only just physically to live here, but to take part in any kind of public life, public office. Well, he has stayed in public life by having a public presence on the internet worldwide and making speeches and uh, conferences with the uh, universities, corporations, a lot in Europe and with political groups, less so in the U.S. And uh, he cares. I mean, he truly cares. And no, you know, they say those people who say spy and don't think about this thing must realize that no spy ever turned over his materials to the newspapers for free. Uh, and also he's condemned uh, Russia for its own surveillance practices. He's been very critical. So he, he's certainly behaving uh, not like a man on the run. He's behaving like a man who's secure in his being, his consciousness, and would like very much to come back to his home country. Uh, whether that happens, we hope what Obama might have a... Who knows, maybe Obama has an ounce of mercy. Uh, and that's important. Mercy is important consideration in politics. That uh, We all take hard positions in politics, but sometimes the quality of mercy is not strained. And I wish Mr. Obama could reconsider. Did he ever talk to you during any of those visits about a desire to be pardoned? No, no, that came up. And that was not our agenda either. We were thinking about a movie and how to make it and how to make it exciting enough so people would sit through it. We don't want to sit through a documentary most of the time. So uh, it was always, uh, that was a secondary issue that came up later when I think uh, ACLU was very involved in this case and they brought in other groups. They saw the film in earlier screenings and they really were positive about it and wanted it to get behind this uh, petition issue. What did you know about privacy and surveillance before you started making this movie and what have you carried away from it? Has it changed you in any way? Big question. Uh, I, being of a, of a suspicious nature, uh, in later in my life, uh, I always suspected something was up with Mr. Bush and Cheney. You had to. And of course, the James Risson story finally broke in 2005, although it was ready to break in 2004. And he, he was talking about mass surveillance then. But nothing compared to what happened in 2013, five years after Obama, declared uh, the need for reform, we had uh, him double, uh, go, doubling down on the Bush surveillance state in a really ruthless way. So five years later, Mr. Snowden, disappointed in Obama's pace of reform, so to speak, went public and Obama was awful on this matter. He was backtracking all the way. First of all, he was accusatory and then he started to backtrack, we need reform. But you know, Obama's a very good speaker, very public relations oriented, but where are the goods? The, uh, the attitude of the American public about Edward Snowden has shifted somewhat recently, but there's still a lot of people who think of him as a dangerous person, not a patriot, a traitor even. 
Um, how is he perceived in other countries? Right. Much more positively, we worked in Germany because we would not feel comfortable in the US to shoot it. And uh, the Germans, of course, from the beginning were, because they've had the experience of the Stasi and the Nazi before, they, they, they understand that surveillance leads to tyranny. And uh, all over Europe, we find a general sentiment uh, that's positive about it. Uh, remember, uh, in, in this matter, the, uh, the US also has changed a little bit and has become more positive. Originally, the polling was 16-30 against Snowden. And uh, the recent polls indicate that much more has moved towards the middle. But you know that's why I'm doing Jeff Beck's show, uh, Glenn Beck's show, uh, John. I wish it was the Jeff Beck show. Uh, and Mr. O'Reilly, uh, you know, you do these shows and you find that there's a lot of sympathy for this. It's, it's, they underst Beck understands that it's a constitutional action. He, he wants Snowden to, to, to be punished, but that's okay. Snowden will take two, three years, whatever you know, it is. It's just that he broke the law for a higher law. For a higher law, he obeyed. And I think people like Beck understand that. How long, uh, how long did it take you to shoot this, and, and uh, what were some of the challenges that were posed by this story? Enormous. I would say conceptual challenges, because the material is very thick, very, very thick, and difficult uh, to understand. I think uh, Kieran and I threw out 50% of our research in order to achieve. Uh, I wanted to make, you know, like a Born Identity film, or uh, I loved Enemy of the State. It was a wonderfully exciting movie. But of course, it depends on uh, unreal, uh, on uh, re unreality because the NSA is behind the, the protagonist right by a second or two. That's just not the case. Uh, the, the, the real danger is in the weapons of surveillance they have now. And don't forget, the movie's also about drone warfare and also, most importantly in my mind, uh, cyber warfare. This is the most dangerous uh, phenomenon that's come along in the it started in the Bush years in 2007, the use of it. We, we dropped the first bomb in Iran. You've talked to me quite a bit about the idea of how warfare has changed and the idea of what constitutes warfare has changed. Can you talk a little bit about that here, about uh, cyber warfare and other things that don't involve missiles and bombs? How can they be considered forms of aggression? Well, this is a very serious virus that's going around. They're much more dangerous than either AIDS or Zika or anything you can call it. It's just a sickness. Uh, you don't get rid of it. We started in 2007. We, we made our case uh, with, with barbarity. We attacked Iran. We didn't declare it. Israel was with us. Uh, we boasted about it, but it was never officially. It was all, it's still classified information, but we did destroy the, the, uh, the, the gauges there, the, uh, the, the thermonuclear, I think. It was the nuclear gauges. Anyway. They are back. They were built six, rebuilt six months later. But the virus kept going and went into other countries, such, such as Jordan. And of course, you can't keep a secret. The world knows that we were using it now. And they, of course, the hackers in the world, and there's many of them, there were brilliant people, as we know, anonymous hackers, shadow war brokers, whatever they call themselves, state actors like China, Russia, Iran. They're going to come back at us with it. So this hacking thing is out of control. Mr. Snowden has described it as a, a surveillance free-for-all. Uh, very serious because war, you don't know who. In other words, when the people, I interviewed the people who, who, start, who investigated the Suxnet virus, it took those people seven, eight, eight months of intense research to find out where had it originated, where. 
and what it was. So this, this presents to you the problem. The news is completely irresponsible to report things like this, uh, this cyber attack was made by Russia in, t in a day or two. It's, it's not true. No one's confirmed it. And our intelligence officials who know better know not to say that. Because once you're throwing out these accusations, you're into a war, a, a, a war situation. You have to be very, very careful now. Very careful. We have to wait six months to find out some of these things. Uh, frankly, I don't know. I haven't seen any verifiable evidence on North Korea on the Sony hack, so to speak. A lot of people I know in the intelligence community think the uh, an insider at the Democratic Party did this, and of course, you know, all these accusations flying around. We miss the point: is what is the context of this? What is the what happened at the DNC? Why did those four officials resign? Uh, there was accusation. There there was improprieties that they performed as chief officers. Uh, to block uh, Bernie Sanders from nomination. So this is very serious, and that's been ignored in this accusation, kind of McCarthyite, throwing out names. Remember when McCarthy used to say, there's 212 members of the Communist Party in the State Department, the next day it'd be 50 or 60. It was like, it's, it's crazy when you start making accusations and you can't back it up. All of the things that you've just uh, listed are are things that cannot ultimately really be verified to the satisfaction of the American public, yeah. And in some cases, you can't even uh, get anyone to talk about them. That's so true. And you get the, you get the froth, you get the cream, you get... Uh, it's so silly, I think our, our election campaign has driven us to, close to madness. Because uh, people, it's a trivial election, it's not really about any... Sub, the substance is never discussed. What substance should be discussed? The wars that America's involved in, climate crisis, and above all, I think, uh, not above all, but certainly surveillance, and uh, the mass surveillance on this scale, and as well as Mr. Snowden himself. You described to me in the book many, uh, how many of your films, not all, were in, in some ways a warning, a warning about a road that we were going down. Uh, and one of the most surprising things that you said to me was you were concerned that uh, your films, you wanted your art to change the way people saw the world. Really? Yeah, and you've seen, and, yeah, you did. It's in, it's in print right over there. Uh, and I detected a note of frustration that, that not just your art, but art in general maybe doesn't have that kind of power. That's frustration, yes, I think so. I, I am, uh, my life has been an interesting journey. I started conservative, I think you know that. Uh, my father was a very intelligent Republican. It was in those days, uh, Eisenhower was his man and so forth and so on. I grew up not questioning the status quo. I, and I went to infantry in Vietnam, I served, and it took me many years still to wake up. Uh, and uh, as a result, you know, it's hard to, I don't, I don't very rarely uh, do I believe authority unless they back it up or else uh, I, some, I, f I find that there's so much lying going on at the government level. It's, but it didn't start now. It just started, it started with the war in Vietnam. I mean, you could talk about the, all the reasons to get into the war. We've been lying to ourselves uh, about Iran, Iraq, uh, certainly uh, Syria. There's a lot more there than we know. We don't get good information. And I always distrust uh, the, uh, the powers of our, our of our government as well as the media. The media seems to have become a government spokesman. They don't think about it. They become a, a, a gang of uh, one, basically. 
So it's a very dangerous time we're living in. And it reminds me somewhat, because I was a young boy, but I remember vividly some of the McCarthyite period very well. And I, I worry that we're become, we've gone back to this Cold War unthinkingly to, to make a drama, to keep the military-industrial complex going. You know, there's all these motives at work, uh, but it's, it's more nefarious now because the weapons are much more dangerous than they were in 1963 when during the Cuba and the Berlin crises. You've, you've, uh, you've talked a little bit about the cycles of history, the sense of certain patterns repeating. I sense that here when I watched Snowden, it made, me, it made me think of Born on the Fourth of July, and there are certain movies of yours that I feel almost could be paired off in that way, like Platoon and World Trade Center, which are both survival stories. Um, but there's always kind of a positive note. Yeah. I mean, as sort of uh, apocalyptic as you sometimes sound, you often have hope at the end of your movies. You certainly do with this, but even in something like uh, uh, JFK. He loses the case, but he walks out with his head held high, and the, and the score goes into a, a major key. And it says, the end, like it's a 1950 movie. I like that. I grew up that way. My mom was an optimist. My dad was more of a pessimist. But I like happy endings, and I think everyone does. And I, I know I'm accused of being sentimental and all that stuff, but honestly, the uh, Edward Snowden's actions is an individual act of conscience, but it affects everyone. I do believe in that concept of, Everything we do, we can help the, the, world, the world through our actions. Everybody is responsible for their own individual actions. But I, I just don't want to be a guard in a concentration camp. That's the, that's the sleeping population. Right. So, uh, you know, I th every little thing you can do, even if it doesn't seem like you have a chance in hell, you'd be surprised. So I do believe in a collective uh, ability to protest and to revolt. I do. It didn't do much good with Iraq. We know that because there were more people in the streets in Iraq than there was ever in Vietnam. And it was earlier. Yeah. So, but that was very downhearted. Bush wouldn't listen to anybody. He was just going ahead and doing it. And the media, Jesus Christ, our media cooperated with him in that sense and, and spread the lie. So uh, yeah, we're living in difficult times, but there's still, I do believe, hope. And the Snowden story gives me hope. I was also struck by, uh, at various points, I would describe you in a particular way, and you would amend it slightly to make, your, to, to, to make it seem as though you were a work in progress. Like I described you as a liberal, and you said you were not, you pointed out that you, you voted for Reagan in 1980, the first time. Yeah, I voted for Carter in 76, because I really thought he'd bring progressive change. And he did to some degree, but he went back the other way, towards war and the military industrial. Reagan. I thought in that day, I, I, I liked his face. I liked the optimism. Uh, morning, I really didn't know as much. It was in the 1980s that I went back to Central America with Richard Boyle, who just died, on the, on the film Salvador. And there I saw again the same symptoms I'd seen in Vietnam. The, the soldiers, uh, the involvement in their internal government, dictating their policy, supporting the death squads in Salvador, and horrible Contras in Nicaragua. We had soldiers in Honduras, and Mr. Reagan was basically saying that the Nicaraguans are going to cross the Rio Grande and bring communism to Texas. Can you imagine? Uh, be a good thing for Texas. Uh, I, I'm from Texas, and I can tell you that wouldn't have worked. Uh, well, it is Mexican to begin with. Uh, That's true. It is. Uh, so anyway, uh, we are a little paranoid. Is we create a lot of. We think our enemies are much bigger than they are. Uh, sometimes we make 
an enemy out of a neutral force. Another country is thinking about its own national interests and doesn't want to be dictated to by the United States, doesn't want its election process fucked with. As, you, as we're now complaining about other countries, uh, about our election process, it's kind of ironic. Everything comes home to roost, as Mr. Martin Luther King said. The chickens come home to roost. Don't be surprised at what's going to happen now. You, you talked a lot about the, the concept of karma. And that was another work in progress moment where I described you as a Buddhist and you, you said, no, I'm a student of Buddhism. That was interesting. Um, but do you think there is any sort of a karmic cycle to our political life? I don't know, uh, Matt. That's a good question because we haven't really, since we've gotten that Reagan course from 1980 to today, if you notice the Democrats have become Republicans. Basically, we're supporting the wars without questioning them. So there's no peace party available. Ms. Clinton uh, is really a Republican in the, by the stand, definitions of the old days. She believes very much in the military complex and she, she's been a hawk on every, she's never met a war she didn't like. Uh, so I, I am very concerned. There's nobody talking peace. Sanders was, was weak about it because he, he, it was mostly economic, but basically we've got to begin somewhere. We've got to get a third party. We've got to get a recognition that peace is in our interest, in our national security interest, which is one of the things that Snowden is saying very clearly. Why do you think we're so paralyzed in this country? Why do you think it's so hard to substantially change our political essence? Well, you know, one psychological underpinning is interesting question is, is I think we have a love of aggression and a love of violence, uh, which uh, I know I did. You love American movies when you're a kid because there was always the righting of the wrongs. There was a lot of shooting and killing and the bad guy eventually got it. And I think it's a very simplistic thinking. So I think that grows in the culture and we have one of the most aggressive cultures. Nowhere in the world, I, having been to a war and having seen other countries, I don't see this love of the military that you, you have in our country, which shocks me still. I mean, they have these advertisements on television and they actually all over America, they spend a fortune uh, telling the young people that this is a great thing for democracy and human rights, and we do all our, we go to all these wars abroad with dignity and and uh, for the uh, for a higher cause. We are exceptional. This is basically wrong history, and it's dangerous history because it mythologizes the military into something they're not. As you know from my Vietnam films, that military makes many mistakes, and there's a lot of bad things that happen from killing uh, innocent people and civilians is a bad karma. Uh, but we certainly, you know, in America, we do buy the advertising. Uh, Walt Disney is our national patron. He should be on the dollar bill with a, with a on the, he should be, he really should be, because I think our history has is, is been Disneyfied. And uh, that was one of the things I took, undertook in 2008, Untold History of the United States, is the opposite of that story, and I think kids would like it because it's a horror film. It's really the way kids like to, they want to be told the truth, A, and B, they, they, they're bored with history because it's been disnified. It's, it's sanctified, it's sanitized, whatever the word is, and that's not the case. They would go for the real history, and they would understand it, and that's where we could begin to change by educating uh, our mass, our, our, our general population. But, you know, by the way, history books, you cannot even get a book like that into the system. I tried, we tried with uh, California, and we tried with the uh, Texas school system. Those are the two most powerful systems in, that we have in the country. It's impossible. You need millions of dollars just to get a, uh, to get a lobby going to uh, start, but it's, 
I, I guarantee you, it's just not possible to change the curriculum. I, uh, there was a moment where I was interviewing you about uh, natural born killers and the trouble that you encountered because that movie was so dark and so violent and the two main characters were natural born killers. And uh, you said, I don't, you, were, you were questioning why it was such a shock to the system at the time. And I said, maybe it's because that film didn't have an audience surrogate. And Oliver said, what's that? This was two years ago. Audience surrogate. Audience surrogate. And I said, the audience surrogate is a slightly bland, kind of undeveloped character who is the, the stand-in for the audience. And they go on the wild ride with the killer. But they're not actually a killer. And you said you thought that was bullshit. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? And also the, this idea of the nice guy culture, like you were just talking about this. I mean, this, the, Disney, the Disney being our patron saint, this, is, this has been something that you've, been, uh, that you've believed in pretty much since the start of your career, even before you, were, you're, uh, uh, you broke through with Salvador. I uh, loved uh, Disney as a kid, the 50s. Davy Crockett, I saw it the other night, actually. I, it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fun movie. You can watch Davy Crockett. He was a hero. But when you grow up, it doesn't work out that way. It's a nightmare. And uh, if you keep selling guns and you keep selling violence and you have these new video games, you encourage the kids to buy into it, and uh, our system won't change because I think we have too much money invested in this, uh, you know, most Raython and all those companies, Dynamics, uh, too much money. I mean, how do you get out of it now? How do you get away from that? Did, Eisenhower himself warned us back in, 50, in 61. He said, we're going to change the structure of our government with this. And we have. And it's a very good question. And, uh, it, you get into trouble. But well, as I said before, every little act counts. Well, thank you for coming out, everybody. Um, if you want to talk to Oliver, we're going to head out into the lobby. And, uh, and if you uh, want to take a look at the book, uh, there's, going to, there's a copy out there. And thank you so much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>